for joining. Thank you for joining me today. So, you ready for some exciting learning? I got lots of exciting stuff for you today. Not to put your thinking cap on though. <laughs> There's a lot of deep, very, 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 I said very right, yeah. Very important stuff here. We are going to be exploring the second principle today. The second principle of faith or faithful trust. Okay, so with no further ado, the 56th episode of our series on trust, or learning to trust, is going to focus on the continuation of the third chapter. The Chayvah Salavavas, the author of the Shara B'Tochem, he began chapter three by telling us that there are five fundamental principles that a person has to understand and assimilate into his or her persona perhaps internalize in order in order for betochen to be built in order for us to achieve a profound sense of faith and trust not just emunah but betochen trust in Hashem if you're following along inside we're going to be picking it up today on page 71 in the Kihat edition and in the Kihat edition, we have a little headliner here, Complete Trust, No Lip Service. I call today's class True Heart, because you have to be true. <laughs> you have to be true in your heart. So let me, let me just throw a question out there, you're all wise and discerning people. Does Judaism place the greatest emphasis on feelings or on action? You must know that our sages said, the deed, that's our Jewish creed. We have to focus on doing the right thing. Performance of mitzvahs is of overriding importance. 
Now, to be sure, doing a mitzvah with a sense of fervor, with a sense of passion, excitement, exuberance, or even reverence and awe are critically important. That's called ahavavir. That's metaphorized as the emotional engagement or involvement in a mitzvah. <laughs> the Alter Rebbe talks about this in Tanya, and he says that the Zohar metaphorizes and depicts the performance of a mitzvah as a bird. And he says the emotional side of the mitzvah, the joy, the excitement, the exhilaration that one might feel, that's like ahava, that's love for Hashem. The sense of profound respect, awe, humility, subservience, those are feelings that are found under the masthed yira, awe, or fear. And the Zohar calls them Tere Gadfin, two wings by which the bird can fly, by which your mitzvah can be elevated. But the Alter Rebbe says, the halacha tells us that nitla agafeha, that if a bird's wings are clipped, in other words, it's no longer able to fly, kshera, it's still a kosher bird. And he uses that in metaphorical terms to depict for us this idea that if we don't have the appropriate volume of excitement or reverence when we perform a mitzvah, in fact, even if we perform a mitzvah in entirely lackluster fashion, just by rote, habitual kind of performance or observance, it still has value. We even go so far as to say that when doing the right thing for the wrong reasons, one is still considered to have observed a mitzvah. Because out of observance, for no reason, or even the wrong reason, one can eventually come to do the right thing for the right reasons. So heart, mind, consciousness, emotion, they're important. But as a rule, they're relegated to a second tier. That's not to say it isn't part of our Yiddishkeit. I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't try to get emotionally involved. Moshe Rabbeinu spells out this mandate, the mission that every Jew is given, saying that it's exceedingly close. It's within your abilities to speak of or communicate. It's within the ability or frame of our existence to feel it and, of course, to do it. And Alter Rebbe wrote his magnum opus, the Tanya, addressing this very verse and trying to help us learn how we can feel, how we can experience our Yiddishkeit in the range of emotion, not just the realm of action. But by and large, action still reigns supreme. That's the rule. Every rule has exceptions. Today, my friends, you're about to learn of one of the most glaring exceptions in the entire range of Yiddishkeit. And it's going to be fascinating. So buckle your seatbelt. And please come along with me for what I think will be a, an exhilarating, uplifting, inspiring, and enjoyable ride. Let's take it from the top. 
Page 71, complete trust, no lip service accepted here. As the commentary in the Kiat edition says, that having said the first introduction necessary to have betachin is full comprehension of how Hashem possesses all of the seven qualities, <laughs> those are the seven qualities that we talked about prior in chapter 2, the things that are requisite or necessary for one to place trust in a provider, and then we illustrated how these things are found within Hashem. And in the beginning of chapter 3, that was the last 10 episodes, we illustrated how this is only to be found within God. And therefore, only God is really deserving of our trust. And only in God should we place our total and complete reliance. We now move on to the second fundamental principle. And the second thing that we must all know if we are to succeed in our betachen building project. The Neder Bar-Kodesh comments and he says, In the beginning, we included the first preface or first principle, we spoke of the seven criteria which were articulated in the second chapter. The Kibzom Biyachad, all seven were gathered together as one. Vahichiach Besechel, Rabbeinu Bechaya demonstrated to us in very lucid terms. Shehem Einam Babruim, that these qualities, this criteria, isn't to be found amongst created entities. Kiim Babreid only in God, our Creator. And therefore, so the first preface was, don't even bother looking for anybody else to trust in. Oh, and by the way, why do people place their trust in mortals? That's got to be the dumbest thing you could possibly do. They don't measure up. <laughs> they simply can't deliver. But Hashem, God can. So that was the first preface. But the second thing is, Sheyeda, that we should know. And we've talked about that in a previous episode. The emphasis on the word Sheyeda, which is not simply cerebral knowledge. It's not just an academic awareness, but rather a deep-seated kind of knowledge to the point that it becomes almost a predisposition, like a bias. Knowledge that becomes an extension of who you are because you identify with it. That's the kind of learning we're trying to do here now. We need to know this. You know what I mean. But it's not just enough for it to be something which, well, I kind of know it, but I'm not really sure why I know it or how that works out. I have to really have this clear. It's got to be crystal. I have to see it in the most lucid fashion. And we'll soon talk about why that's necessary. What? What must I know? What must be crystal clear to me? God's looking at you. He's looking deeply into you. He looks deeply into you. Nothing is hidden from him. Now this sounds kind of familiar 
didn't we previously speak about and develop this idea that God knows everything? And here we're speaking about God's looking at us. Nothing is hidden from him. Sounds mighty familiar. This is a second, a different principle. The commentary, Pat Lechem, anticipates this very question. And he responds as such. Lemaila, earlier, Diber Bebechinas Hashgachosoi. We speak of God's supervision. You know, the term Hashgacha Pratit, divine providence. Yeah, God's making everything happen. And of course, He knows everything, as we talked about. It is by virtue of God's knowledge that things actually happen, or that we even exist. And that's to provide for you, to do good for you, to make sure you're not missing anything. We're talking about something different here. Khan Medaber, here he speaks about the dimension, the ideal. Shahu Yizbarech, Mashgiach, I love that God supervises you. Livchanoi, in Lavavishalim. God's testing you. God wants to know if you are sincere and wholehearted. Or is this just a charade? Just something you talk about but don't really mean. The Patlechen points out something which is utterly fascinating. Because, as I have told you so many times during the course of this series, Every word here is precise. Every nuance. Chas v'shalom, heaven forfend for us to trifle. The words of the great Rabbeinu Bechaya, or as they are rendered into Hebrew by his translator Ibn Tibbet. Earlier, says the Patlechem, this divine knowledge was referred to as hashgacha. Hashgacha means supervision a word that you might be familiar with in the modern-day vernacular is a supervisor, a kosher supervisor in the kitchen. He's called the, that's right, the mashgiach. What's his job? Simple. To make sure that everything in the kitchen is being done in a kosher or appropriate fashion. All the ingredients are kosher. Sometimes you can have two kosher ingredients mixed together it produces a toxic and totally non-kosher mix. <laughs> I'm talking about milk and meat. Milk and meat? Do you need a mashgiach for that? Yeah, first of all, yes. But sometimes there could be a dairy derivative, which people didn't even realize. For example, many, many different companies who produce garlic or granules of garlic powder or garlic salt use whey to keep the granules from clumping together. Whey is a dairy byproduct. That means that not only does the garlic have to have a kosher symbol, so we know it was made with kosher ingredients, we also need to know that it isn't whey infused. Because if it is, the stew that's being cooked is absolutely not kosher. So what's the cook thinking when he or she does that? What's, what's the chef planning? I mean. Really, who cares? It doesn't matter if the chef is diabolical and wants to serve everybody non-kosher food, or the chef 
is mindless and just reach for the nearest bottle of garlic. The mashgiach's job isn't to psychoanalyze the chef, the kitchen, or waitstaff. The mashgiach's job is simply to make sure that everything's being done right. We're not talking about supervision here. Here we're talking about seeing into somebody's heart. And that's why the word supervision doesn't get used. Ubekan Karahashkofa. He uses the term, term looking deeply. Incidentally, this term of looking deeply, as the Medrash Rabbah points out, and Rashi alludes to this, typically has a judgmentalness attached to it. Looking at something critically. Not simply taking in the scenery, but looking to see what isn't as it should be. You know, in modern-day vernacular, I'm going to take a good look at that. That's hashkafa. There's only once in the entire Torah that the word hashkafa is used in a favorable fashion where God says, I'm going to look down and bless you rather than look into what's going on. That's when we bring Bikurum of firstling fruits. And Rashi, in his commentary on the Chumash in Deuteronomy, notes this. He says, this is very unusual. The Torah uses the term, Hashkifa kotcha. I am going to look down from my heavenly abode. God should bless the nation of Israel. Hey, really, Hashkafa isn't about benevolent glances. True, Rashi says. But there's a message. Namely, that when we act in a way that is generous, sharing of our wealth, sharing our harvest, an act of tzedakah. That turns what could be a baleful glare or a judgmental looking into things into a positive and benevolent kind of look. At any rate, the point is clear. Hashkifa or hashkafa means to look deeply inside. And so the Patlechem points out, here in the Shara Betochen, we use the terminology, not ki haboyre yizbarach mashkiach, not God supervises this time, but rather mashkif. God is looking deeply into you. Nothing is hidden from him. The einela mimenu. There is nothing hidden. We're going to use four terms now. And... Uh, let me just say that many people just gloss over this. Big mistake. Big mistake. This is not poetry. This is not hyperbole. Every word here is so exact and precise. Could have been written in modern times. So what does God see? He's looking. Nothing is hidden. What does he see? Well, Rabbeinu B'chaya says, Nigleu, he sees that which is overt or revealed. Here in the translation in the Gehat edition, they say, actions performed in public. Okay, things that other people can see. God knows if you did or didn't. But it gets deeper. God also knows the Nistari. He knows the things that you're doing in private when it's not in public view. 
you know, people react to being in the public eye. They behave differently. In fact, when people discover that when they thought they were in private, they were being seen, they're deeply hurt and offended. In the United States and Canada, it's actually a criminal act. It's called voyeurism. You can go to jail for that. It's considered to be a profoundly insensitive and cruel invasion of somebody's privacy. But God's always looking. So whilst many people behave one way in public, assuming a benevolent, kind, generous, even spiritual persona, but behave differently in private, Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar says, who are you fooling? God sees everything, always. He sees that which is public. He sees that which is private. And if I may, he also sees the glaring discrepancy between the two, the hypocrisy that so many people engage in. You know, people like, people like me and you, who behave one way, intuitively, when they think people are watching, but perhaps aren't as righteous or spiritually minded when nobody's there to see. That's something we need to think about. Then Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar goes further. He says, God does not only look at actions. Utsufuno. God also looks at the things that are intrinsically hidden. Not actions that are done in secret or concealed, which is the idea of nister. The word nister means concealed. That means something that has to be concealed because otherwise it would be open. Tsafun means something which is intrinsically hidden. It's not a question of having to conceal it. Nobody would know because nobody can see. What are we talking about? Obviously, it seems we're talking about thoughts. And then he says, Vinir ehu, and what's visible, what's seen, what's apparent. And I'm saying, what? You got the hidden, you got the overt, the obvious, you got the concealed, you got the hidden thoughts. What's Vinirehu? What is this? <laughs> I'm glad you asked. It sounds really strange. So the Nether Bakaidir says, Nigleo Vinistare, Shiniglami Menu Albne Adam, the things that other people see. Or Shahuaisabimistarim, the things that people do when they think nobody's looking. Nobody sees me. Ishlayaren. Then there's Tsvunai. He says, Tsvunai, who? Machshava. I don't have to hide my thoughts. <laughs> my thoughts are private. Nobody knows what somebody else is thinking. Vinid Ehu. Nedibakredish says something I personally find incredible. He says, Shemachashavtai nikeres betoich maisov. His thoughts are evident by virtue of his actions, or or by virtue of the things this person says. What does that mean? 
What does it mean? What is he talking about? So I had a friend who was a professional at advising people to better their communication. I guess you would call him a, was a media coach. He was a public speaking coach, communications expert. Nebuch passed away a few months ago. Very fine fellow. His name was Jeff Ansel. Jeff taught me a lot of fascinating things. So I was, I was like a kid 20 years ago. <laughs> and by stroke of divine design, that I never could have expected, I ended up on radio and television, and I didn't really know what I was doing. I was kind of just going with the flow. I had no training whatsoever. I mean, I had lots of training or practice in studying Torah, and even a little bit of training insofar as teaching Torah is concerned. But to do it in front of a camera, I really had no clue. And I said, Jeff, um, I need you to make me better. He says, no, you're great. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. If I, if I was paying you, you'd make me better. I said, give me some advice. So he gave me some fascinating advice, which I'm mindful of all the time. He said, it's statistically proven that people focus on body language far more so than they focus on the words being said. When he told me the, the percentages, I was astounded. It was something like, it's 92% of what you're doing, what your body language is saying, and the, the lilt or effect of your voice, that's something like 92%, and only 8% is the actual content until this very day. I still have difficulty buying into that. I, I actually can't believe it. <laughs> I would like to think that the reason that we're spending time together online is because of the content. So I'm teaching you incredible Torah ideas. It's not about the way I say it. It's, it's the content. This is amazing stuff, unparalleled. But at any rate, what is clear is that body language and the way something is said and facial expression has an enormous impact. Okay, so what do I do with that? So we took a video, a tape of one of the television sessions I did, and he said to me, look how you're sitting. I was sitting like this. He says, do you know what your body says? I said, I don't know. Your body's saying you're being defensive. I said, no, I'm not defensive. And then I looked more carefully, and I thought back to that particular encounter, which wasn't comfortable. And I realized that I was being defensive. He taught me always to speak with my palms open. Because when your fists are clenched, it broadcasts a message of strength in a negative way. It's like combative. But when you're open, Open palms is open. Be an open book. Speak to people. Look at them when you speak. Speak into the camera. And he taught me that the communications experts believe that invariably, no matter how much training you have, and regardless of how careful you're trying to be, what you're really thinking will leak out.
He said in the industry, they called it leakage. He says, people who know what they're looking for can read other people because their body language is leaking all over the place. If you're uncomfortable, it's going to be obvious. If you're angry, it's going to be easy for people to know. What I realized is, sometimes we don't even know. We didn't mean to broadcast something, but our body leaked it out. Things that we weren't even thinking. Latent things, subconscious things. These things are being broadcast without us realizing it. This is a modern idea, by the way, or at least <laughs> the communications experts believe it's a modern idea. I'm asking you, is this not what the Nader Bakaydish is saying? Or what the Rebbeinu Bachaya is saying? Is he not telling us that there is an element of what we're thinking, subconsciousness, that we're not even aware of? We didn't even know. He told me, for example, that when people lie, they always touch their nose. He says, always. He told me one of the best communicators in the world, at least at that time, this is uh, about 20 years ago, was Bill Clinton. And he said the former president was a masterful communicator. Masterful. And extremely glib. And he could tell a lie like, <laughs> just about better than anybody else. And yet, in, in those hearings, in those Lewinsky hearings, Multiple times, he pulls his nose. You know, that's the whole Pinocchio thing about the long nose. People actually touch their nose when they're lying. We don't even know why. In other words, there's something that's apparent, or our appearance is broadcasted, and we might not even realize that we're sending a message out. We might not even realize we're thinking about it. It seems to me that that's exactly what Rabbeinu Bachaya speaks of here. He's covered the actions we do overtly or covertly. Of course, that includes things we say or choose not to say. He's covered thoughts, which are tzafun. And then he's even addressed the subconscious. Because the subconscious is vinid eyu. It makes appearance. So why didn't he just say subconscious? The truth, I don't know for sure, but here's my hunch. If a person has an urge, a desire, which is inappropriate or unhealthy from a Torah perspective, does that make them a bad person? Suppose you see something somebody else has and you feel a twinge of jealousy or say, wow, I wish I could have that. Does that make you bad? Well, you're going to say it's, it's one of the mitzvahs in the Torah. In fact, it's included in Aseret HaDibrot, in the ten special statements that God made at Sinai to the Jewish people, which is proverbially called the Ten Commandments. Lotachmod. Ah. <laughs> the Rambam says it's not so simple. 
If a person has a knee-jerk reaction to something, that's called just human. If a person chooses to ruminate on that, ah, that's a choice you made. We are held responsible for the choices we make. We are not held responsible for our innate human failings or our imperfect personality. Some of us are more jealous by nature. Some of us don't even notice. Some of us are more prideful by nature. Some of us have no egos. Some of us are, are more angry or reactionary. Some of us are just really laid back. None of those people are better or worse. They're just challenged in different ways. The truth is that Yiddishkeit, Torah, mitzvahs, spirituality, relationship with God, religion, faith, any of those terms is rooted entirely in the notion or the concept of the choices we make. Conscious choices we make. And sometimes we make a choice not to ignore something, not to look the other way. We're entertaining the thought. It leaks. When we entertain a thought, when we stop for a moment and make that split-second decision to think again, it leaks. Our body language says something about it. That's where Torah, that's where mitzvot begin. The moment after the first impulse. Of course, God knows our impulse. He created us that way. No human being is deemed to be inappropriate, immoral, rebellious, seditious against God by virtue of his or her desires, innate desires. A person may desire the consumption of pork, a Jewish person. It doesn't mean that he or she is a bad Jew. A person may desire an unhealthy or forbidden relationship. It doesn't mean that they're bad. It means they have an opportunity to serve Hashem in a way that somebody else doesn't. So the person who doesn't have a particular craving, lust, or desire doesn't have the opportunity to sanctify God's name or to deepen and enrich their relationship by God by saying no. Because it's not a challenge they face. <laughs> I get no credit for not eating pork. I have no desire. I really don't. Not because I'm righteous or holy. I was raised by observant parents and I was privileged to have observant grandparents. Everybody around me was Torah observant. Pork was an anathema. I think the first time I saw pork, I was 20 years old and I was horrified. <laughs> Some of you listening might find this funny. It's a conditioning thing. That doesn't mean I should go eat pork, shalom. Doing so would be a violation of Hashem's Torah. I'm a Jew, I'm not permitted. But a colleague of mine who once ate pork and came to Yiddishkeit later and still craves bacon and eggs but doesn't eat it, now he's serving Hashem because that's a choice he made. That's my humble suggestion based on the Neda Bakredish's interpretation of these words. Nigleyu God sees it all. God sees it all. He knows it all. And God has expectations. 
expectations that you will live a life of devotion to Hashem, of commitment, of conviction, and of subservience in your actions, communication, in your thoughts, and then your innermost impulse or entertaining of consciousness in all of these arenas. God's looking because He cares, because He loves us, because we matter, because what we think makes a difference to God. Please don't ask me why. I can't answer that question. In fact, nobody can. Nobody can tell you why God needs to care. He doesn't. He chooses to. The beautiful thing is that whilst we may not understand why God craves a relationship with us, we can be excited by that very idea. We can be uplifted by it. We should be, in fact, joyous because of it. That's an argument Alta Rebbe makes in chapter 41 in Tanya. We'll get to it a little bit later, but I want to move along now in our in the point that Rabbeinu Bahai is going to make. So he makes this point, and the point is that God knows the truth. He knows, as the Marpel and Nefesh says, He knows if we're being hypocritical. He knows if we talk the talk. But don't walk the walk. He knows if we talk the talk and our heart's not in it. That's a problem too. Why? I mean, <laughs> I'm doing what I got to do. I'm saying what I have to say. Says the Marple and Nefesh. Yodeya ha-emes. Hashem knows the truth in piv. Shovim. If you're being honest, genuine, you're saying what you feel and feeling what you say. Bibit When it comes to your trust. When it comes to your betochen. Because my dear friends... Betochen is not about what you do. Betochen is how you feel. And if you don't feel it, but you say it, and you act it out, you're not a person of betochen. Because betochen is all about how we feel. As the Marple and Ephesh explains, if you're being dishonest, even to yourself. How could this person lay claim and say, I trust in Hashem. You trust in Hashem? But in truth, your heart isn't in it. Your heart's filled with anxiety, worry, panic, fear. You're acting as if you're cool, calm, and collected. But you don't feel that way. You're not blissfully relying upon God. You're desperately thinking, who can I call and how can I extricate myself in this situation? Oh, I think I found someone who can help me. I trust that guy. I'll put my reliance in him. That's not called betachen. The oz. So what's wrong with that? Okay, so a person acted as if they had betachen. 
Marpel and Nefesh says, we got a problem. Because as we have learned in the beginning of this book, if a person chooses to turn away from God, then in fact, God chooses to turn away from him. And then, Marpel and Nefesh says something quite fascinating. Then it will be a desecration of God's name. Ask me why. Why? Because we are living with this truism that if a person has proper betochen, Hashem is going to provide. People say, look, here's a person. They had all the betochen in the world. It didn't work. If betochen works, that person should have been saved. But alas, that person didn't really have betochen. The person acted as if they had trust in Hashem. They spoke about their trust in Hashem. They didn't feel it in their heart. So they didn't have betochen. So the vehicle to receiving God's blessings was leaking. The mechanism didn't work. People say, aha. Uh-huh. So it doesn't work. That's a chilasha. It would be better for a person to say, I wish I had betochen. I'm trying to have betochen. I want to trust in Hashem. I'm so fearful. I'm so worried. I'm so filled with anxiety. It would be better for a person to say that and be honest than to say, I have betochen, when in fact they don't. This is really quite extraordinary because in the panorama of Jewish, the Jewish experience, it is rare, in fact, almost unprecedented that feelings should be the beginning, the middle, and the end. That lip service is worthless. That acting out a particular feeling that isn't is but a charade. In fact, I can't think of anything else like this. If somebody acts as if he or she loves Hashem, at least they're acting in a loving way. You know, Maimonides in the Book of Mitzvahs talks about what does loving Hashem look like? He describes an emotional feeling. He talks about like a person in love who's like, like we call it, like, you know, love struck, can't think of anything else. But he also says that Ahavat Hashem is when you are impelled to try to get other people to love Hashem. Because when you love somebody or something, you want others to love and express adulation as well. You can act out Ahavat Hashem. You can act a sense of awe or reverence even if you don't feel that sense of awe or reverence. To the best of my recollection, the only time that this mitzvah cannot be fulfilled without feeling too, or the mitzvah that has to be, there's an emphasis on feeling, is the awe, the respect that we're supposed to give to the Beit HaMikdash. It's berogesh, it says in the Pasuk, with feeling. 
And even then, there are many ways to act out in an awe-filled or respectful way. Many halachot. There are no halachot of betachon. There are no laws of trust. In fact, <laughs> nobody ever wrote about it before. Certainly not in a systematic way. This was Rabbeinu Bechai's great and everlasting contribution to the Jewish people. And he's telling us something which is critically important to know. This isn't for appearance's sake. In fact, if it isn't true heart, if it isn't genuine, it's worthless. That's a jarring thought. The Neda Bakaydish says similar, similarly, he says, that other people, if they see that this is a person who went ahead and claims to have betochen, but doesn't, in fact, he says, Likris Tagar. It leads for people to call out the very idea of betochen. They say, Im levada. If he expresses betochen only in lip service fashion, say, Look, he didn't get what he wanted. The betochen doesn't work. Well, fake betochen doesn't work. Fake betochen isn't betochen. In fact, betochen, trust, can only be real. <laughs> Otherwise, it isn't trust at all. It's acting in a trustful, tr- trustful fashion. It's expressing trustful thoughts or trustful ideas. It's not having trust. Having trust is a feeling. If you don't feel it, you don't have it. As simple as that. As the Tzemach Tzedek points out in the Biyuri Hazayar, hmm. I thought I had that somewhere. I think I left two farm downstairs. Okay, Hashgachah Pratis. Anyway, as the Tzedek points out in Be'udah we did I did share this with you in a previous episode. I just wanted to be able to read it from the words to kind of like a, bring it out in the sharpest of fashions. He speaks about betochen in the realm of heart, of feeling. It's all about lave. He says it's not within the realm of cerebral service to Hashem. It's within the realm of feeling, and the realm of feeling only. And those who serve Hashem in a way that transcends heart, in an entirely subservient and entirely what we would call self-effacing manner, they might not excel at betochen because they're not touchy-feely about themselves. <laughs> you have to first be very much aware of yourself to feel or experience betochen. The Paslechem explains this idea of betochen in the following fashion. Why is Rabbeinu Bachai telling us, telling us about this? Like, wh- why is it so important for him to convey the need for authenticity? He says, Kol kavonas hamachaber The entire 
intention of the author by introducing us to this idea is because when a person remembers that God is looking at him, in him, in all of his words, in his thoughts, he'll remember you'll remember, you'll be mindful that God is looking, do you really trust me? Are you really putting your trust in me? And if you're mindful of that, the first step of the journey has begun. The Paslechem points out now that we're going to see a strands of scripture that are woven together to make this point. And the Paslechem is going to illustrate for us how each one of these separate strands comes together or is braided together so that the message is delivered in its fullest and profoundest way. But first, let's go through these verses with the Mepharshim, and then we'll take a look and see what the Pas Lechem says. The first verse, the first Pasuk we are going to speak about is a verse from the book of Psalms. So Rabbeinu Bechaya posits that Im be'elikim be'lev shalim, God is looking to see if your betochen is whole, wholehearted, or not, imloi. Kasher Omar as the verse, as the Pesach states, and this is from Psalm 94, the 11th verse. Adeshem Yedea, God knows of man's thought, or a man's thought, a person's thought. So he translates it here as vanity. The art scroll translates it as. They are futile. I don't know. Hevel is nothing. They're evanescent, passing, of no lasting or true value. What is the point of this, of this verse? What is, what is David HaMelech trying to drive home by saying, God knows the thoughts of, a pers- of people for it's nothing? Well, if it's nothing, why does God have to know it for? <laughs> like, what's the point? If it's vanity, why does God bother have to, have to bother himself with vanity? If these f- thoughts are futile, why does God have to know them for? It's almost like a contradiction. So Radak has a very interesting interpretation of this verse. And it seems to me that maybe Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar had this in mind. Radak says, Hu yodeya, he knows, God, shemachshavosam alov, he knows what they're thinking about him. God knows what people think. People think, God doesn't know what I'm thinking. Nobody knows what I'm thinking. But God does. 
So God knows our thoughts. For our thoughts are vanity and futile. Our thoughts are that God doesn't know, but he does. He does. So that's the first verse. The second verse, in which we talk about God knows, even though we mistakenly think he doesn't. The second verse is lifted from the book of Proverbs. Mishle, Chavdalad. In the 24th chapter of the book of Proverbs, in the 12th verse, King Solomon says, Let me quote the way Rabbeinu B'chaya introduces this, the words he uses, and then I'm going to give you a little bit of the background. He says, Halo tochen li and he knows the innermost of their heart. Tochen is, as the Mitzudetzian puts it, milashoin toich. He knows what's inside, the inner recesses of the heart. <laughs> so, listen to the context of the verse. Kitomar hein yadanu, for they say, or less they say, he doesn't know, he doesn't know. So the Pasuk says, really? You think lo yodanaz, he doesn't know? Halotochen libes huyavan. He knows what's in your heart. Rashi, in his commentary on the book of Mishle, says, ki tomar should be understood as shema tomar, lest you say. He says ki, the word ki, which sometimes means because, can also be understood bilshoin dilma. It can also be understood as lest. Or perhaps. So he says, lest you think God doesn't know, he knows. Mitzudah's David says, you deny, you deny God knows. He doesn't know. He says, who are you fooling? Your words are meaningless. God knows. He's in your heart. He's in your heart. So the verse, according to Radak and Tehillim, is David HaMelech saying, Hashem Yedeya, he knows. You think he doesn't know, but he knows. And then Mishle, Shlomo HaMelech says, you think he doesn't know, lest you say he doesn't know. He's in the heart. And the third verse, the third verse is lifted from the book of Kings. This is quite fascinating because in this particular collection of verses, King Solomon, Shlomo HaMelech, is inaugurating the first Beit HaMikdash. It's the eighth chapter in the book of Kings. And it begins with the details of the inauguration of the Beit HaMikdash. The structure was transformed into a proverbial house of God. A place that housed the Shekhinah. The Ark of the Covenant was placed inside. And we hear details of how the Ark was transported with an incredible celebration. And a whole procession. And that God provided his sign of approval. And there was a, a cloud. Or something like that. It's called a cloud. And then, Shlomo HaMelech praised Hashem. 
he reflects on the Beis HaMikdash, the relationship of Am Yisrael with God by virtue or dint of the structure, the edifice of the Beis HaMikdash. There are prayers of thanksgiving. And Shlomo HaMelech also makes a number of detailed requests. These requests pertain to the power of the Beis HaMikdash, the efficacy of the temple whose construction has just been completed and has just been dedicated. Of course, there will be countless people who will pray here and hope to be heard by God. So in the midst of all this, Shlomo HaMelech says, and I'm going to give you a little bit of the background here because Rabbeinu Bechaya quotes the part of the pasuk, the part of the verse that's relevant for his point. Ki You know, God knows. The context here is, going back to verse 39, verse 38, even though this is a quote from verse 39. Kol tefila, chol techina ashatiya l'chaladam, l'chala amcha Yisrael. King David says, any prayer, any entreaty of any person of your entire people, your nation Israel, that each of these people knows his own private affliction, the pain of his own heart. And he spreads his hands forth in prayer towards this house. And you, God, will hear in the heavens your proverbial, anthropomorphical dwelling place. And you will atone, you will forgive. And you will give each person, you will give each person according to his ways. As you know his heart. Ki ata yodaita levadcha es levav kobnei adam. For you alone know what is in the heart of a person. So God will hear. Shlomo prays. God will forgive, and God will grant the wishes, the prayers. He will respond to people's requests. What relevance is this business? You'll give to each person according to his ways. As you know his heart. So the 19th century commentary Malbum says something which I found really quite fascinating. First of all, he says, to be sure, this business of God knowing the heart is what he refers to as a mimer musger. It's almost incidental. That's not the thrust of Solomon's message. But it sheds light. It kind of frames and gives us an appreciation of what Shlomo HaMelech is asking for. Why? A person prays. What's the difference if God knows his heart or not? He's praying for what he wants. He says, Lamashal, let's borrow a parable. 
If a person prays for affluence, not survival, not to have his needs met, affluence, riches. Affluence and riches are the financial freedom for a person to do as he or she pleases. It's not parnosa, it's not livelihood, it's not sustenance. <laughs> this one rich person once told me, he says, he's living in Brazil, he said, you know, you know what it means, I'm, I'm living in Brazil, if I want to see a play at Broadway, it's fine, I just call my wife, I said, you know, meet me down at the office, and an hour later we're on a private plane and we fly to Broadway. Go to New York, watch the play, and go back that night. I'm like, all right. Okay, I can't even relate to it. So, a person prays for those kind of riches. So what's wrong? If Hashem loves him, he's praying for it, and he says he's going to give tzedakah, do good things. What's wrong with the riches? Vahashem yedeya, God knows, as only God can know. Not because God will force the person to behave or do a certain thing. God gives freedom of choice. That was a whole topic of discussion yesterday, in the previous episode. But he knows kefiteva ha'ish, by virtue of this person's nature. She'im yishman yivat, that if he will grow corpulent, it's a euphemism for wealth, he will, so to speak, rebel. He will kick. And if this person will become wealthy, he will steer clear, turn away from living a life of reverence and respect for God. God loves this person. He loves all of us. He wants what's good for us. Our journey in this embodied terrestrial sense, is but a blip on the screen. It's a short little journey within what we would call a panorama of eternity. The person says, I want to have a good time. I want to enjoy myself. I want to have lots of fun and power and fame. God says to him, I gave you an opportunity to be able to transform this world and make it a godly place. I gave you a mission and a purpose. Whatever you do here during your sojourn on earth is going to affect you for eternity. Why would I ruin your life with money? Why would I ruin your life with riches? I'm not talking about a person being extricated from the jaws of poverty. We're not talking about a person being given the ability to breathe, we're talking about luxury, excess. We're talking about things that people don't need. God says, I know what you need. It's not riches. It's not good for you. Why would God then give it to you? In other words, Hashem is saying He knows the nature of a person's heart. Hashem yedeha emes ki darki according to this person's nature and nurture, having these riches will not enrich the person, 
but vastly impoverishing. So God won't fulfill the request. No matter how sincere the petitioner is. So that's the context of these verses. Why does Rabbeinu Bakaya have to quote three verses in which we hear about this idea that God knows what's in our heart? The Paslechem explains this in a stunningly beautiful way. He says, The first verse is what he calls a raya kololis. It's a general proof. You must know that God is aware of what's in your heart. Who is barachideh machshavis? Who you fooling? God knows what you're thinking. Of course he knows what you're doing. Lest the person thinks, well, broadly speaking, God knows what people are thinking. What's called a yediyah klolis. Overarchingly, God knows whether people are sincere or insincere. He knows that their thoughts are vanity or not, are hevel. You think, I don't know. God says, I do know. Okay. No, no. That's not good enough. Therefore, he brings the second passage. He knows what's in your heart. He says, is a paraphrasing of the term hidbonenut, rumination, contemplation. It's getting into the details. It's like analyzing something with all of its details. And then a person might still say, so God knows what people can know. How about our subconsciousness? How about what nobody could ever know? How about what you and I perhaps don't even fully grasp or realize about ourselves? Yeah, God knows that too. If you think about the way the Malbim explained the Pasuk, it seems exactly what Rabbeinu Bachaya is alluding to, at least in the view of the Paslachim. So we have this beautifully braided rope, this, this strand of proof, which is woven of different scriptural expressions that are not complementary per se or mutually intermingled, but rather one begins where the other ends. Each makes a unique contribution, and so you have a really solid example of God knows everything. He knows what people think. He knows about the details. He knows what you don't even know about. Now I'll remind you what we spoke of earlier in the first, uh, in the, in the, in the latter first part of the class, we talk about vinid ehu, the appearance of sake, the leakage. It's exactly what's going on here. So God's aware of all these things. It doesn't say God could be if he wanted to be. He is. He is. So what's that supposed to do for us? Are you kidding? What that's supposed to do for us, my friends, is it's supposed to make us realize that we matter. And our feelings matter a lot to God. I don't have to know why. What I have to know is that they matter. I just want to check if there's any questions here. The truth is that the Alter Rebbe shares a very, very similar but slightly different approach in the 41st chapter of Tanya. The Alter Rebbe says, 
that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is meniach el yoyinu v'tachtoyinu. He sets aside heavenly worlds, higher worlds, lower worlds. And v'hine Hashem emed alav. Hashem is, so to speak, standing over you. Uvoichem kloyes v'lev. He is searching your innermost thoughts, feelings. He's searching to see if you serve Hashem properly. Incidentally, that passage from the 41st chapter of Tanya was selected by the Rebbe as one of the 12 psukim, the 12 foundational verses that represent and embody the essence of Judaism. The difference, of course, is that over there, the Alter Rebbe's emphasis is not on betochen or our feelings per se, but rather on the actions we take and the feelings that infuse those actions. As the Rebbe once explained on a Yud Gimel Tamas Fabrengen, this was in 1955, the Rebbe said that a Yid has to always be mindful. In the beginning of the 41st chapter of Tanya, the, the, the Alta Rebbe says, Hine Hashem Nitzavalov, Hashem is standing over him, Ubmabitalov, he's looking at him, Uboichin Kloyas Velev, he's analyzing his innermost thoughts and feelings. Im Karo, are you serving God as well as you can serve him? So if I'm studying Torah, better than everybody else around me, but not as well as I can study Torah, am I serving God appropriately? The answer is most definitely not. If I am davening, praying with devotion, a far more devoted kind of prayer than those around me, but it's not the kind of prayer that I'm capable of offering before God. It's not the kind of focus. It's not the kind of passion. It's not the kind of fervor that I'm capable of generating during my own prayers. Then my prayers aren't actually a proper act of Avedis Hashem. I'll spell it out for you simply. If a person who barely makes ends meet gives a hundred dollars to tzedakah, it's huge. It's huge. They don't have any money. They can't even pay their rent. There's nothing left at the end of the month for them to buy food. A hundred dollars of tzedakah literally breaks their bank. For a person who can afford to give a million dollars to tzedakah and wouldn't know the difference, a hundred dollars wouldn't even register. because the theory of relativity in Yiddishkeit is that each of us isn't judged by virtue of others, but only against who we are capable of being. So God's looking. It's not only our actions. It's our innermost thoughts. The Rebbe said, the point that the Alter Rebbe is trying to make is this. When you feel this, because you're thinking about it. And that is, incidentally, the very thesis Rabbeinu Bechaya is talking about. Thinking about it. Thinking about it until you feel it. So when you feel it, if you had the klinikite, every small little thing, then this is as per the teaching of the great Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai to his disciples on his deathbed, where he told them, Yehirotzein shehei meira shamayim aleichem, may it be his will, 
that you will revere and respect God, with the same sense of awe or respect you afford other people. And the students were utterly surprised. We should respect God like we respect a person, that's all? And he says, yeah. Because when people don't think they're being watched, they behave very differently. When the cameras are on, that's another story. The cameras are always on. God is always watching and you're never alone. And you matter more than we could fathom or imagine. So when you think about this constantly, when a Yid thinks that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is Maniach leaves all these things aside. He's Oymid Allah. Oymid Kenegde Umabat Allah B'Shasa Sheisamayim. Hashem's looking at you. You're drinking a glass of water. Hashem's looking. Did you make a bracha? A shahako? And when you make a bracha, did you actually think about what you just said for a moment? Or mumble the bracha so fast that there was no time for any kind of mindfulness. The kasha And when you drink, are you guzzling it down? Or are you drinking because the body needs to drink? So you're taking care of the body. <laughs> the Rebbe gave a very interesting example. He says, it's a hot summer day. And... And you're thirsty. You're feeling dehydrated. Does the water have to have ice cubes in it? Or what difference does it make? If it's cold or if it's room temperature. Yes, it's more refreshing when it's cold in the moment. But as far as hydration is concerned, room temperature water (laughs) or ice water doesn't make a difference in the hydration. Just gives you a little more pleasure. Rebbe says, God cares if you do your material pursuit with an eye to pleasuring oneself or being mindful of a higher purpose. If this sounds daunting, it is extremely daunting. It's extremely difficult to serve Hashem on that level. But every little thing makes a difference. And being mindful of this will make a difference in how we serve Hashem. Now, of course, the examples that the Rebbe is giving us are not examples of betochen. These are examples of how we should infuse our everyday life, the performance of our mitzvahs, and even ordinary pedestrian things with a sense of mission and purpose, with a sense of holiness, that should have a sense of electricity about it, a sense of enthusiasm, a sense of excitement. I am now doing something that matters to the king of all kings. The master of the entire universe, the creator of everything, cares about my thoughts, my meditations, my frustrations, my biting my tongue, my saying something which is necessary, but not more. You know, you can criticize somebody, or you can give it to them. The latter feels much better. What would Hashem want of you right now? And He cares. That's the kind of mindfulness that we generally try to achieve. Rabbeinu B'chayah says to you, when it comes to betochen, if your betochen isn't real, you're wasting your time. The Marpel and Nefesh goes off on a bit of an interesting homily here. 
He says, you know, this whole imagery, this whole depiction of Hashem caring about every little detail and knowing what you're thinking. He says, We should be putting our eyes and our heart to the words we recite daily in prayer. I want to point out that Marpil and Efesh uses the term eyes and heart. Let's put that on the back burner. What does he mean? We say several times in a prayer. We say to Hashem, We say we trust you. We say it with placing our hope in you. We say it right at the beginning of our davening. We yearn for you, God. Because we have placed our trust in His holy name. This is what we say in the opening part of our prayer known as Haidu. We say, May your kindness be upon us. As we hoped for you. What's that talking about? Your kindness be upon us as we hope for you. In other words, it's not just about reciprocity. What you're thinking of and how you place your trust in Hashem becomes the vehicle to actuate God's blessings. And then later when we come to the blessings of Shema, we say, In your great and awesome name, we have placed our trust. And then we get to the climax of prayer, the Shemon the Amidah. We say, God, we say, please, we plead, give a good reward, a good portion. For all who trust you, who trust your name. And then we say, place us amongst them. Why? By virtue of what can we make such a request? Because we have placed our trust in you. Marpil and Nefer says there are other examples also. You know what I found so fascinating about this? I found so fascinating that in today's Hayom Yom, the fifth day of Kislev, the Rebbe here speaks about the ladder of Father Jacob's dream. And the Zohar says, in at least three places, that that ladder is, me- is a metaphor. It's a parable for prayer. Sulam dotsloisa. The ladder is prayer. And the previous Rebbe notes in one of his Hasidic discourses that the ladder, which is prayer, represents the medium or mechanism through which we are able to achieve connectivity with God, a neshama, can have a hiskashrus, can nurture a profound connection with God, belikus. Although the latter is rooted in the ground, indeed, he says, the beginning of prayer is acknowledgement. Chassidus talks about this idea of the opening part of our prayers. You know, like maida'ani as em- emblematic of a superficial kind of acknowledgement. The metaphor which is often quoted in Hasidus is a, a, a discussion amongst the sages. Reb Meir says, okay, I will acknowledge the opinion of the Chacham I give in. 
It doesn't mean he necessarily saw it the way they saw it. It doesn't mean that he doesn't principally not disagree about how the law should be understood and what the proper jurisprudence is. But in this instance, he said, okay, Maida, okay, here I agree. Here you have a point. That's what it begins with. I feel I am, of course, and I'm an I. But I can acknowledge that God is above me. And that I matter, not because I matter, because Hashem cares how I behave. So it's a very elementary kind of acknowledgement. And then we move through the prayers. We come to Pesukah de Zimr, the verses of praise, and we come to the blessings of the Shema, which are sometimes framed as two separate, presented as two separate uh, entities, or sometimes they're kind of sewn together. You know, part two and three is various things that we contemplate, we think about. We contemplate and think about nature and the world and the universe in a terrestrial fashion. Then we go on to focus on heaven and contemplate on its details until we come to the climax. The climax takes us into Shema. And then we come to the Shema Nasri. And he says, Roshay, the head of the ladder, said the Fridik Rebbe, Magiyah Shamaima. That's Bechinah's Bitola Atzmi that represents the highest level of subservience. This is the concept of the Shmonesra where I no longer feel I. I have to begin the Shmonesra by saying, God, please open my mouth for me. Hashem Sfatai Tiftach. I don't even have the ability to speak on my own. So how do you get there? You get there through contemplation. How do you get to the top of the ladder? through thoughtfulness, through mindfulness, through constant meditation about these things, the more you think about it, you're able to move up the ladder to reach the very heavens. Think about what the Marpila Nefesh did for us here. He talked about the different stages of prayer. Wow, the stages of prayer. He mentioned the Hodu. He mentioned the blessings of Shema. And he mentioned the Shmon Esri. And here's what's so incredible. In each level, we're talking about betochen. We're talking about trust in Hashem. And we're building our trust. So it's not a sum-zero game. Obviously, there are people who will be more profound in their trust than others. You and I can be more profound in our trust. We have to keep working on our trust. But whatever trust we do have in Hashem has to be sincere. Not lip service. Not charades the real deal. And he finishes off again with the same words, that a person should place his eyes and his heart always towards this gate, this gate, Shara Betochen. So I want to comment on the terminology that the Marpila Nefesh uses, the eyes and the heart. In the 33rd chapter of the book of Exodus, Moshe Rabbeinu has successfully petitioned God and obtained pardon for the Jewish people. He now says to God, see here, you're telling me to take these people up? He says, no, no. You didn't even tell me who you're going to send with me. I need to know that your presence will be with us. So Rashi explains these words as, Re'ei ata imerli. Look here. You're saying to me, that's kind of funny. That's how Moses speaks to God. Look here now. 
So Rashi says, it's a euphemism. There's a deeper message that's being conveyed. Re'e, see with your eyes. Tein ein'cha v'libcha el dvarecha. Put your eyes and your heart to your words. You say, you're going to take me? You didn't tell us who's going with us? And then you start telling about an angel? That's not what I'm looking for. So the Rebbe asks a very simple question. What does Rashi mean with this unusual verbiage, tain eincha v'libcha el put your eyes and your heart? What does he mean? It's a funny expression. God doesn't have eyes or heart. It's like the metaphor is supposed to explain to us why he said, look here. So why did he say, look here? Because he has an eyes and a heart. Doesn't have an eyes and a heart either. Look here is anthropomorphical. So you, you answered or explained or clarified anthropomorphism with another anthropomorphism. What's the point? So the Rebbe says, where do we find the syntax of eyes and heart? We find it in the book of Kings. In the beginning of the ninth chapter, where King Solomon, after making all of his petitions and begging God for Hashem's engagement, involvement in the Beis Hamikdash in response to people's prayers, then in the ninth chapter, King Solomon turns around and he begins to perform what we would call a supplication. And in the ninth chapter, with the supplication with where Shlomo HaMelech prays now, not for, so to speak, the prayers of the people, he prays for Beis HaMikdash itself. And what does he say? He says to God, Ten encha v'libcha. He says to God, I want you to place your eyes and your heart. In other words, his monumental efforts elicit a sign from God in the form of a cloud. The king's prayers are that Hashem's presence should remain with us. He says it should be the place of Eincha Velibcha, that your eyes and your heart will always be there. So, what does it mean? What does it mean when Hashem appears to Shlomo HaMelech and he says, My eyes and my heart will be there all days? In other words, God says it'll be continuous. I'll be continuous. I won't look away. My heart will always have room for you. This, this promise is the promise of that which is continuous, not occasional. Even in a time when the Jewish people don't behave properly, this should always be a constant seems to me that this is what the Marpe Lenefesh alludes to here when he talks about the eyes and the heart. I think that that very insight of the Rebbe in the words of Rashi could perhaps be used here as well. And this is my point. Having betochen is something that will take continuous effort. 
The bad news? You'll never finish studying this book. It's never going to be something that you can file away. You always will have to work on betachen. The good news? If you constantly think about it, and you constantly study, and you constantly focus, you can achieve it. But it requires continuous effort. As Rabbeinu Bachai continues by saying, When the person who has betochen trust in Hashem, this blissful reliance on God, when it becomes clear to him, that it's not appropriate for him to say, oh yeah, I trust in God, without really trusting in God in your inner recesses. You then end up being at the level of somebody who Isaiah identifies critically in the 29th chapter of his prophecies, where he says, yeah, here we have a person, a person who is bepiv, uvisfosov kibduni, says God. He honors me with his mouth, with lip service. Reliboy richak me many, but his heart is very far from me. Yishayo Hanovi is critiquing the people. In Hashem's name, he says, Vayoyimer Hashem Yan ki nigash this nation seeks to come close, as the Metsudas see and says, Nigash is Milshoin Hagosh of Akarav. You want to come close to God. He says, They want to come close to me, but they only want to come close to me with lip service, through external expressions of devotion. Bavur ki says the Metsudas Dovid, This nation comes to me. Lihiskarev bediburapeh. They speak nice words. Kibduni basfasain, they honor me with lip service, with their words, but not with their heart. Liboy, their heart is richak me, many, their heart is far, far from me. What does that look like? It looks like, says Radak, a person who does exactly what he or she is supposed to, but nothing more. You take no initiative in your observance of Yiddishkeit. You do exactly what you're required to do, and that's it. Ah, then it's not something you really want to do. In other words, the definition of lip service, according to Radak, is not just something you say, not just something you do, it's the way you say or do it. If you're doing it dutifully, if you're doing it out of obligation, not out of love, out of responsibility or necessity, not out of desire or passion or excitement. Are you really coming close to Hashem? Now, mind you, the people who honor God with their words is better than the people who turn their backs on God. Rabbeinu Bachaya does call it a maila, he calls it a virtue, but it's a deficient virtue. And when it comes to betachen, it's actually worthless. Because betochen is entirely contingent on what's in our heart. So how do we do that? How do we change the way we feel? The answer is we have to work at it continuously. Because if we work at it continuously, eventually 
we can start to feel it. Here's something quite fascinating. Rabbeinu Bechaya, in his commentary on the book of Exodus, he says, why is it that God made miracles, constant miracles for the Jewish people, just in the nick of time? He says, you might not know this, but in his commentary on Exodus 13, Rabbeinu Bechaya II, Rabbeinu Bechaya ben Asher, he says, do you know that the sea did not split open for them at once? to make one long, you know, the way they depicted in Hollywood. The sea split open. It wasn't like that, he says. It wasn't it wasn't straight through. The sea opened immediately before them. They literally walked into the water as it opened. The sea was fleeing from before them. The faster they went, the faster the sea split. They would see the sea split open before their very eyes. That's what the psalmist says. The sea saw them. He kept running from before them. Why'd God do that? He says, this is just like the manna. How much manna fell? A month's worth? A week's worth? Always a day. Dvar yom the Lama says Rabbeinu Bechaya, came. Why did God have to do that? to get them used to Madregas Habitochen, to get them used to trusting God. So their eyes were always raised heavenward, looking for the next shower of manna. to test their hearts. Betochen, heart together. So Hashem did this to us as a nation. You know, the, the, the latest or breaking field of genetic research is called epigenetics. And epigenetics posits that the things that we do copiously, continuously, especially if they come in a visceral way, actually can be encoded into our DNA. And we can pass that on. For example, if there is certain behavior that's engaged in generation after generation, then there's a proclivity, a predisposition for future generations that they will be more likely to follow that behavior. It doesn't mean they're forced to do anything. You don't have to do what your genes do. You can overcome your limitations, but they'll have a, a handicap, so to speak. When there's a family where there's rife addiction, at some point it gets passed on genetically. You have to kind of break out of that cycle. Makes it much more difficult. Of course, we should understand this in a positive way. The Gemara says that if a person studies Torah and then his next generation studies Torah, what happens is that there's a predisposition to Torah study. You still have to work really hard. But it's nice to have a predisposition. God made Betachin part of our DNA. We were just slaves. We didn't even believe in Hashem. We came through the Reed Sea, and it says, Vayaminu Bahashem. It's basic faith. It doesn't say we had Betochen. Betochen was something that Hashem helped us to nurture. So we didn't trust Him in the beginning. He said, we're going to go to the land of Israel. We didn't trust God. We believed in God. We didn't trust Him. The process of 
our desert sojourns was designed to inculcate within us a sense of trust. So the more the person speaks about this, shares it with others, ruminates, thinks, studies, the more we're able to bring forth and implant within our hearts a sense of betachen, real, true heart trust in Hashem. I want to conclude with two beautiful expressions, letters from the Rebbe, in which the Rebbe speaks to people about their lack of trust. One is a letter that's printed in the 21st volume of, of Igres Kedish, of the Rebbe's letters. This is a, the, a, a book of the missing letters from the first 20 volumes. So this letter goes back to the summer of 1951. And the Rebbe writes to somebody who he received a telegram from somebody. And the person writes to the Rebbe in a very despondent way. Seems to be struggling with a health matter. The Rebbe says, Follow the advice of two expert doctors. And then he writes, Strengthen your trust in Hashem. What's your trust in Hashem? God will restore you to your former strength. I'm waiting to hear good news, he says. <laughs> I bless you. And then the Rebbe writes this. It's in Yiddish. You're learning, you're learning. And then when you're faced with a challenge and a test, where is your trust? So how do you develop it? Yeah, this very thing we're learning now. The Rebbe says, learn it three or four times. And the Rebbe says, I'm not talking about swallowing the book whole. But at least spending several weeks on it. How do you build Betachen? We're doing it right now. Here's another letter from that same period of time. This is printed in the fourth volume of the Igris. And the Rebbe writes, You're looking for another position. I don't uh, think it's a good idea. This is from early summer, 1951. The Rebbe says that you need to take the position that Hashem has given you and you need to be strong in your trust in Hashem that He will guide you in the proper path. He will make you successful in your holy work. And if you start to doubt whether or not you're capable of actually doing this, it's not a question of your ability. It's a weakness of trust in Hashem. It's your conviction that's questioned. So what's the advice? The advice of how to build the betochen? Learn the Shara betochen and Cheves Alvavis. And the Rebbe says, strengthen your bond with the tree of life. Namely, Lima de Chassidus. Learn about God and godly concepts. Learn Chassidus. Uliyeh is Chassidusi. Go to a Chassidish of Abrengen. 
Well, a little Lachayim is said, and there's a joyous exchange of ideas about God and our trust and faith in Him. And the Rebbe says to him, if you'll do this, and you'll make a point of expressing your joy, you'll make a point of making others joyous, that'll strengthen your betachen. Now, if we wouldn't have learned about the second principle today, so many of us might think, well, you know, as long as you uh, talk the talk, the rest will fall into place. As long as you do good things. That's usually how it is with faith. Faith, emuna comes in the word, uman, a professional. We keep going through even the performance of mitzvahs habitually, and eventually it does nurture one's faith. It's true about faith. It's not true about betochen. Betochen, trust in Hashem, needs a unique focus, the kind of focus that we're working on right now. The kind of focus that we'll continue to work on as we study the incredible magnum opus of Rabbeinu the I, learning how to trust so that we, together, can live with certainty and be the recipients of Hashem's blessings. Thank you so much for joining today. I appreciate your presence. Please be so kind as to like, share, and if you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe, youtube.com forward slash Shavi Mendel Kaplan. God bless you, and have a wonderful day.